Oh, Father, we acknowledge every weakness of body and soul reminds us of the truth, what we have just sung, that we need you. Certainly, Lord, we need you for the salvation of our souls. What man could accomplish his own salvation from the hell that he deserved. There's nothing of merit in and of ourselves that could justify us before a holy God. We who fell short of your glory are without hope of salvation unless a Savior would arise, perfect Son of God, sinless, spotless, and our sacrifice. And so we need you, dear Jesus, and your blood to wash away the justice our sin deserves and the stripes and the bloody back that you took all the way to Calvary, hanging on the tree in our place. And so it is with our physical body, when we're reminded through weakness, Lord, that plagues this fallen world, that sin and death still accompany our way. We need you to supply breath in our lungs, healing for our immune systems, and strength for our body to rise up, Lord. We pray for those who are struggling with illness this morning. We continue to lift up the young ones among us who need your healing touch. We need you to save us, Lord Jesus, from the predations of this fallen world, our physical bodies. And then there are those of us who are facing steps of faith and are calling ministry and missions. We need you, Lord, to attend our way, to go before, to make the path straight, to raise up the valleys and bring down the mountains, to prepare the hearts, Lord. We need you, Lord, the rest of us as the body of Christ, a reminder to support and to pray for it, to encourage and to come alongside those who are in need. We need you, Lord Jesus, to give us extra strength so that we can support those who are in dire straits. We need you, Lord, to remind us by the power of your spoken word this day, the ground of our salvation, the hope for all eternity, and the sovereignty that you wield over all of history. From the pages of Joseph's story to the pages of our own, there is what, but one Savior, Sovereign and Lord. Christ is His holy name. It is Jesus Christ, our risen and ascended Messiah, that we worship and praise this day. It is Him and Him alone that we champion as our cause and the cause for all who would turn to Him for salvation. That in Christ and His blood is the forgiveness of sins forevermore. Lord, I pray this day as your word is proclaimed that you would humble our hearts before its authority, that you would quicken your church by its life-giving power as the Spirit uses the worship, the praise, the testimony, the fellowship, and the proclaimed word of your church this morning to reinforce and equip your church for the battle at hand, that we might be faithful in the cause to lift up the glory and name of Christ to all the world and to those whom you call us to even as the waters cover the sea. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Praise you, Lord. Today we turn our attention to the Holy Scriptures, bowing our hearts before the authority of the Lord proclaimed in His Holy Word. I encourage you to turn with me to Genesis 41 as we continue to mark the saga of God's sovereign intentions and purposes and providence in the life and calling of one Joseph, who against all odds will rise to a place of prominence, giving glory to Yahweh all the while in the midst of a hostile environment and a nation that's pagan to the core. The aim of this morning's message is to encourage the suffering believer who might relate to Joseph in a time of exile 
or in a time like he had of imprisonment and abuse to some degree, or difficult circumstances, however they might occur, to encourage the suffering believer from the perspective of God's authority. The perspective of God's authority is always available to us in the pages of His Word, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. It was, in fact, the dreams that Joseph received when he was 17 that gave him the perspective in prison that he would not stay there, but that God would surely fulfill His promises as surely as Joseph lived, as surely as the sun rose and the sun set, and as the fields sprung into bloom, the Lord, the Maker, Creator of heaven and earth, would not return void on what He had promised and proclaimed. And so the perspective of the authority of God's spoken word in covenant assurance to His Son provided the encouragement and the endurance that one would need even if he was stuck in the king's prison. And we need this too. Regardless of our trial, the principle still applies. This morning an alarm is issued in the context of Egypt and the ruling elite there. So let's call this message Heaven's Fire Alarm, if you will. There is a promise in the dream or a prophecy in the dream of Pharaoh that a blight of the east wind would come and would threaten the crops and the harvest and therefore the livelihood of all of Egypt for seven years. This dream comes by way of God's revelation to a king who did not know him. But he would soon get to know Yahweh through the prophetic testimony of his servant who we find still in jail, the opening of this chapter. He will not stay there though. This Messiah figure will ascend to save the people of God. Thus in that symbolic form prefiguring Christ and bringing the authority not only to bear on his own hope for his calling, but the authority of the Lord who reigns from the heavens to bear on the most powerful emperor at the time we presume Pharaoh himself. So would you stand as you're able for the reading of God's word and let the encouragement of God's scripture lift your spirits this day as you listen to the authoritative word of God in Genesis 41. We'll read verses 1 through 32. Hear now God's holy word. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came out of the Nile seven cows, up out of the Nile, seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed on the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Verse 8, so in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, and there was no one, none, who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, verse 9, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream of its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving, us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about, I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and then quickly brought him up out of the pit. 
And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. There is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph said to Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed on the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor, very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. Now when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. Verse 22, I also saw in my dreams seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. This is the word of God. You may be seated. A fire alarm, if you will. A warning of danger, a siren indicating great peril has been issued from heaven in the form of dream and prophecy. We estimate at this time Joseph is around 30 years of age. He's been in Egypt for some 12 years now. And two of these years have passed in prison since in Potiphar's, Potiphar's prison in the house of the captain of the guard since he interpreted the cupbearer and baker's dream. And you remember that came with a plea from Joseph that the cupbearer at least might remember him when he was restored to Pharaoh's court. Now, in the perfect timing of God's purposes in our chapter two years later, Pharaoh's dreams jog the memory of the cupbearer, and he recalls that the man of God had told him his dreams two years ago. This reminds us that God, though the cupbearer had forgotten Joseph, God had remembered him all the while. He had never forgotten his son, in spite of how the situation might appear from the temporal vantage point. God was organizing and ordering precisely the timeline and circumstances to lift his son, as it were, to ascend him from the pit unto a place of exalted authority, bringing the word of God even to kings. And this is how it happened. There's been a warning issued from the throne room of the glory, and Pharaoh is alarmed. He knows that something's wrong. There's a sense of concern that no doubt rippled through all the court and all the land as he begged his magicians, the experts, the scholars, the astrologers, the pagans, the prophets of his day, the false idolaters. What could possibly be the meaning? By this time, the word is getting out, no doubt. 
and he has greater cause for concern still. Though he is plagued and troubled by these dreams, he has no idea what they meant. He does not understand the word of God that came to him by dream. He is in need of a prophet. In the meantime, a siren, as it were, has filled the consciousness of the king. He's troubled, but he doesn't know what to do, and he is ignorant of the meaning of God's word. The prophet Joseph is lifted from the pit of tribulation to reveal and to proclaim the word of God to Egypt and to its king by way of Pharaoh, by way of his interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. And I'll remind you, as we think forward through Scripture, this would not be the only time God would raise up such a voice through his appointed and anointed servant. In Exodus 1.8, there had been some tragic amnesia in the courts of Pharaoh of that day, some generations later, many years after Joseph's day, another king, another Pharaoh would arise, who the scriptures say in Exodus 1.8, quote, did not know Joseph. In other words, he did not retain the word of God delivered to the prior administrations of that empire. And thus, tragic consequences had fallen upon the arrogant and self-exalting Pharaoh, and God would demonstrate his authority by a divine showdown in the courts of the blasphemer. Once again, this warning was issued from heaven and would be carried by a fugitive, Moses, to the courts of the most powerful man on earth. And in that case, the command was to submit to the authority of Yahweh or else. The first Pharaoh would submit, the second would not, and we see the contrast through the course of the Scriptures. The lesson for us today, there are many, but among them, common folks and world leaders have cause for alarm. There is alarm in our world today. You sense it all around you, do you not? It's in the tenor of our news. It's in the fearful expectations of what the future might hold. It's in the assessment of the economic vitality of the West or the dollar or the means of exchange or a possibility of war and those kinds of things. It is common in our day to have a sense of alarm. A siren is ringing even in the consciousness of magistrates, kings, if you will, people in authority. But just like in the days of Pharaoh, there is an understanding that God is speaking in a sense, but do they know it's Him and do they know the meaning of this cause for alarm? Do they know where to turn? This is where Christians, as well as the divinely appointed minister, is called to bring the prophetic role of proclaiming the authority of God's Word, even in our day. There's an inescapable sense of concern plaguing our society. And situations like these call for the Word of God to be proclaimed with authority. And the message is, submit to the one true sovereign and be saved. Or the alternative is devastating judgment. Submit to the one true sovereign and be saved. Or the alternative is that east wind blight bringing the fires of judgment upon an unrepentant people. This morning, as we seek to understand the office of Joseph and the circumstances that God provided to proclaim His word and glory, let us organize this first portion of Genesis 41 around this theme, the revelatory intrusion of Almighty God. This is a divine interruption. So kids, how many of you uh, have heard from your parents, hey, don't interrupt me? And kids, yeah, yeah, you've heard that. I probably said that last night. In fact, I remember doing so. 
Now, I want you to imagine a weird circumstance. This kind of seems unnatural, doesn't it? Let's say a three and five-year-old are talking politics with one another, something important they're discussing. And then a parent comes around and says, hey, it's time for breakfast. Don't interrupt me. We're talking politics, mom and dad. Does that sound kind of weird? It's, it's true. The parent has the right to tell the child, do not interrupt. But it's the rebellious and insolent little toddler who shuts the voice of his parent down. In other words, the social etiquette of interruption, because interruptions are considered rude, it presupposes that one party has the right to speak, they are the authority, and the other party is obligated to listen. One party has the right to speak, the other party has the obligation to listen. Now, if the party with the obligation to listen interrupts, it is rude, it is disorderly, it needs correction. So think of the circumstance right here in our passage as two parties. One is the Pharaoh and the other is the Lord of heaven. Which has the right to speak? Which has the obligation to listen? So God interrupts, but he doesn't do so rudely. Really, it has been the uh, idolatry of Egypt that has interrupted the creation of the Lord and the circumstances of God and the order that he has designed and the word that he has set forth. And they have been insolent, rebellious against their Lord and Sovereign, the true giver of life. And so now God is calling them to attention. Stop interrupting me. And the authoritative voice of God is going to silence and to shut up the rebellious and blasphemous voice of this false authority and call them to attention. God has the right to speak. And when he proclaims his word, kings and everyone better listen. They better listen or else. He has the right to speak. We have the obligation to hear. And thus, this is kind of the circumstance, the situation, as it's framed in the scriptures as we find it. And and thus, we record, or we see recorded, the revelatory intrusion, that is, the interruption by revelation of Almighty God. And he does this in our passage by way of an alarming dream, a remarkable advocate, and biblical prophecy. So those will be the three headings of focus. Revelatory intrusion of Almighty God, first, by way of an alarming dream. Now, I referenced this before, but let us turn there for cross-reference. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 20. Another king's in view and another covenant-appointed son, Abraham. This is Abraham versus Abimelech. From there, verse 1, Abraham journeyed toward the country of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he journeyed in Gerar, and Abraham said of Sarah's wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man, because the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Do you see the alarm that came by way of dream? An alarming dream, a warning by the Lord. It was a gracious word of correction. God would save the life of Abimelech through his word interpreted by Abraham. But it was also a correction for Abraham who was living in fear. And Abraham was spoken, or he is affirmed by God to Abimelech as a prophet. And when Abraham steps out of a place of fear into his prophetic role, he brings clarity and perspective to the king and things are put in order. Abimelech defers to Yahweh. He bows before the word. He returns Abraham's wife. And Abraham is recognized as a prince of God Almighty among the people of Abimelech. This is the same circumstance as what's about to happen in Joseph's life. This has happened in other times. 
Jacob, of course, is alarmed by a dream in the night hour, but it's also a glorious one in chapter 28. Later on, he's being chased down by his father-in-law, and we recall this in chapter 31. Laban, a rebel against the Lord, is chasing down the cash cow of his son-in-law. But he's interrupted along the way, 31-24. But God came to Laban the Armian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful, do not say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Shaken awake by his rebellious shoulders in the middle of the night, the Lord stops the rebel dead in his tracks through an alarming dream. Daniel chapter 2. This is a means of revelation in the Old Testament that comes up time and again. In Daniel chapter 2, there is a king as well, a self-exalted uh, bragger, bragger to his building an empire for himself. Well, God is going to cut him down to size. My favorite Johnny Cash song, Sooner or Later, God is going to cut you down. That course is in the back of my head as I read in Daniel 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And the king commanded that the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And they came and stood before the king. How similar are these circumstances? A king who felt himself impervious and invincible to his enemies is suddenly alarmed by a dream in the night hour. And in his fear and concern, he gathers the experts around him, and they have nothing to offer. This dream that Pharaoh received was very similar. Alarmed in the night hour, he awakens to a tw twice-revealed, interesting set of circumstances. Plump cows are, are gobbled up by weak and famished ones. Likewise, kernels of grain as well, or ears of grain as well. Note the extraordinary nature of this dream. Extraordinary in a couple ways. First of all, it comes in a pair. It wasn't one dream that stood alone, but two dreams that were similar. And this was significant because Joseph had received or he had interacted in two other pairs of dreams prior to. When Joseph is summoned to the courts of Pharaoh, he could say, it's interesting, Pharaoh, that you had a pair of dreams. I also... By virtue of Yahweh's revelation, have had a pair of dreams as well. It is the Lord who is speaking, and it is He who will interpret. By Him, here is His prophet messenger to tell you the truth. You can imagine that conversation. Likewise, while Joseph in the chapter before was incarcerated in the king's prison in Potiphar's house, uh, he received, by way of interpretation, two dreams to interact with as well. The, Potiphar, or the uh, cupbearer and the baker. They also dreamed similar dreams. And so in this pairing, we see that this is an extraordinary dream, and there's a through line of God speaking through the ministry of Joseph. And so this pattern is revealed once again, even in the king's court. Secondly, the dream is of extraordinary nature because you wouldn't expect emaciated cows to have a whole meal of flat, fat, plump, and attractive cows and then still appear emaciated. This troubled the Pharaoh. He knew it wasn't just, um, you know, a dream inspired by whatever the Egyptian ancient equivalent of pizza was at the time. He understood that this dream has some uh, extraordinary meaning because ordinarily you wouldn't ha expect a circumstance like this. Whatever could it mean that plump ears would be gobbled up by blighted east wind, ears of grain, and yet still appear uh, withered 
after their meal of these plump uh, ears and so forth. So these dreams were of an extraordinary nature. And they spoke to a power over Pharaoh and over Joseph, revealing himself to his people. As we have said, Joseph could recount his own twofold revelation and reinforced by these experiences and, his, and the purposes of God revealed to him in this way, God is setting him up to interact with the king and to give an answer for this question. Whatever could these dreams mean? Secondly, we see, as we've noted in these other examples, that not only was this a dream of extraordinary nature, but it also troubled the king. Back in 41, in verse 8, So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. When a king is not serving the Lord, he may find confidence in the wealth of his empire, in the power of his army, in the extent of his holdings, in all of the uh, wives that he's acquired for himself, in Solomon's case, meaning he has, through marriage, secured alliances with every possible enemy on his borders. These are the things that administrations, even today, reach for principally to gather confidence that my nation is on sound footing, economically viable and strong. A king normally, if he's troubled about with anxiety about the circumstance that he is in, he will look for the health of his economy, the wisdom of his administration, and the strength of his chariots and horses to give him reassurance. And thus, a Nebuchadnezzar leans back, you know, or uh, puffs out his chest, crosses his arms, he scans to the left, he scans to the right from the vantage point of this seventh wonder of the world or whatever it was at the time, his hanging gardens towering over his empire, and he looks as far as he can see into the distance and he sees the well-ordered paved streets with the cobblestones quarried by his slaves in the hundreds of thousands that have ordered this Babylon society. And he sees ox carts bringing in grain and he sees wine vats being dumped into his storehouses and he says, look at this great empire that I have made. This king needed to be troubled, just like Pharaoh needed to be troubled. And it is a grace and a mercy when the sovereign Lord begins to trouble the heart of the king. We should not receive our peace and assurance from things like a sound economy and a strong war machine if we are not living in alignment with the word of God. If we are worshiping our idols oblivious to the sovereign, then God, through the preaching of the gospel, will today, as he did then, bring a word that when accurately articulated will trouble the king. And this is what we need today. Pray that Joe Biden would be troubled insofar as his administration is wicked. Pray that the legislators and the governors, the congressmen, and those who serve in the Senate and the chambers of Washington and each state in the United States of America would be troubled until they acknowledge the sovereign over them. Pray that the Lord would bring a troubling sense, an alarm from heaven, a siren from glory, the sense and the consciousness of deserving hellfire if we do not bow before the Lord of glory and heed his word. This is what happened in this day, and it ended up being a blessing for Egypt insofar as the Lord saved the land from famine through the administration of Joseph and by humbling a once blasphemous king to acknowledge that he serves at the pleasure of Yahweh. Amen? 
This is what is needed today as was needed then. We hear a lot, there's a, a concept in political you know, commentary these days called a manufactured crisis. You know, there are those who in their plain God and their manufactured authority seek to socially engineer by uh, engineering, creating a crisis that they can step in and solve it or to tear down what is, they can, re they can replace it with their utopian dream of some socialist, secular th uh, vision for heaven on earth. That is a perverted lie in that place. So I'm here to tell you that those, those things may be concerning as far as they go, and it's certainly a factor in today, today's age as it has been in other eras of history. There is a greater manufactured crisis still, and that is when God brings his judgment on a land to turn people away from their defenses and their sources of security to repent and to turn to him. We need a manufactured crisis in many ways. We need a sense of our own insecurity and instability and insufficiency. And if God chooses to bring that by rattling the cage of our idols and the things that we've relied on in this land, so be it. Only let that manufactured crisis by the sovereignty of God turn us to trust in Him and Him alone. The king was troubled, and this was a good thing. Think of that feast in Belshazzar's realm. Partying with the vessels, the sacred instruments that God had told the people to fashion as instruments of worship unto him. And Belshazzar, this fat, dumb, and lazy, um, you know, overindulged sovereign in this wicked land is taking these cups and he's using them as instruments to get inebriated and drunken feast. And this debaucherous revelry is taking place in his courts and his realm. And suddenly a manufactured crisis from the sovereign, the Lord of glory, interrupts. There's an intrusion, a revelatory intrusion of Almighty God. There's an alarming message. A hand reaches down from heaven and writes on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And the prophet Daniel raised up to bring the meaning of God's word. The you know, we can hear a pin drop in the building as the glasses shatter and gas fill the hall and no one speaks until Daniel is summoned and the word comes to the king, thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. And much like Joseph, he's rewarded with a high position in the kingdom, but it doesn't last long because God's judgment had waited patiently until this moment and the kingdom would be overtaken and given to another. What did this prove? Daniel survived that, by the way, and went on to be, an to be a counselor to another administration still. But when that king was troubled by that event, it was a day of reckoning. It was a day of reckoning where he was called to acknowledge the sovereign over him and to stop blaspheming the Lord of glory by taking lightly the instruments of holiness and the things that he had commanded to be vessels of worship, not tools of drunkenness. So the king is troubled. So he turns to that which he knows. In the morning, the spirits troubled. He sent and he called the magicians. Oh, that'll do it, won't it? And the wise men of Egypt. Oh, those who you call in a crisis. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but what? There was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. This alarming dream, this manufactured crisis, this divine intrusion, this revelatory interruption by the Lord was of an extraordinary nature. It troubled the king and it confounded the wicked. It confounded the experts. Try as they might, and reaching across the broad scope 
of the empire. They could not come up with so much as a single man, a counselor, a cabinet member, a State Department official, a general, uh, someone in the academy, a professor, a scientist. None of the Egyptian equivalent of the cultural elites was able to give an answer sufficient to give the meaning that would give the king peace of mind and reassurance. So he remained troubled and his wicked counselors remain confounded. And God, therefore, is exalting himself against the backdrop of this wicked people. He's showing himself that the machinations and all the affairs and the courts and the experts and the cultural elite of that hour are not up to the task of governing the affairs of the universe or even their own lives. As their pretended powers come to naught, as God confounds the wicked and the powerful, and brings them low. In Mary's great Magnificat song, she an unlikely vessel to be sure, a young virgin called to have a womb devoted to the incarnation of the very Son of God. What does she sing? She sings that God is able to lift up the lowly, to exalt the humble, and to cut down the wicked. Sooner or later, God will cut them down. Mary is so moved that she would be called to this position of significance and importance And she knows that she will give birth to the king of kings who will call every illegitimate authority to stand before his throne and give an account before his iron rod. And thus, she is compelled to exclaim in her worship that God will bring low, he will humiliate the self-exalted, and he will exalt the lowly. This is what was going on in Pharaoh's realm at this time. A prisoner, Hebrew, exile, sold as a slave, framed for rape, and uh, confined in the prison for years is being lifted up and exalted. And meanwhile, the Pharaoh, the uh, astrologers, his wise men, and everybody of importance and influence in the realm is being proved a fool. The Lord is doing something magnificent in this time. He's showing himself strong. And this nation better bow before him or else. Now, as the Lord continues to arrange the circumstances, not only do we see this revelatory intrusion by an alarming dream, but also by a remarkable advocate. Someone stands in the gap for Joseph, finally, after two years, and it's quite the surprising ally. Verse 9, Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. What does he mean by this? We mentioned it before. Oh, shoot. I gave that vow to that Hebrew in prison that I would get put in a good word to uh, the Pharaoh. I, I totally forgot. The only reason... Or the reason I'm here is he interpreted my dream. God ordered my circumstances. I was placed back again in spite of my offenses in good favor with the king. And it totally blew my mind. And now he remembers, regrettably. Yet he says to Pharaoh, verse 10, When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I having, each having a dream of its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. We mentioned before, two years ago, Pharaoh would probably not have been interested in this story, but he has just had an alarming dream. Now he hears of of one of his officers Now two years serving in his court, perhaps trust has been rebuilt and favor has been restored, telling him that two other dreams have been interpreted, not by one of his his magicians or sorcerers, 
or wise men in the realm, but by a Hebrew slave that's in prison at his captain of the guard Potiphar's uh, jail right now. And now he's all ears. Wow. There is something going on. What does Pharaoh have to lose? Call the Hebrew here. And so he calls them. Now, we see the hand of God working in this remarkable way, giving Pharaoh an alarming dream and using a remarkable advocate to intercede on behalf of Joseph and to provide for the king a means of interpreting his dream. This speaks to us a lesson of future fruit of obedience, if you will. In the main theme of Romans, as I see it anyway, Gene's been preaching from that glorious book, and Paul tells you why he's writing in the beginning and at the end. He says he's writing for the obedience to inspire, basically, the obedience of the faith throughout the nations. So that's the purpose of the gospel going forth, to inspire obedience of the faith. And Joseph's story reminds us that not only are we called to the obedience of the faith, but oftentimes our obedience is in faith as well. Hebrews 11 makes this point as well. There's many who suffered. You know, Joseph lived to see a great vindication. But there are those, especially martyrs we think of through the scriptures and church history, who suffered and died without personally seeing the same kind of vindication. Nevertheless, they were obedient. They were obedient in faith of future fruit. Obedience that the Lord has called us to is to trust that our faithfulness now will yield fruit in the future for his glory, even if we don't live to see it. Joseph was obedient in Pharaoh's household. He was obedient in prison. And in both cases, he demonstrated his calling in an exemplary fashion. His administrative giftings and abilities were obvious and evident in both domains. And that went before him. Joseph had faith that in the future, his obedience might yield fruit if God should be so pleased. This is an encouraging word for us. You know, Joseph did not heed the temptation of Pharaoh's Potiphar's, excuse me, wife, even though that would have been the easy thing to do. And in your mind, you might justify it. Well, uh, if I don't, something bad will happen to me. And after who will know anyways? And I mean, don't, you know, God has forgotten me, obviously, uh, anyway. So what do I have to lose? Give in to temptation. Joseph did not do so because he heeded God's word. He bet on God's promises. He did not reassess given the situation in front of him. And he, in, and he in, endured in faith that his obedience may yield future fruit. In the short term, it got him thrown in prison. In the long term, his reputation went before him. We see this fruit or future fruit of obedience evident in Joseph's story. We also see the value of a reputation of faithfulness. As he said, no doubt, the testimony of the administrative integrity of Joseph, both in the household of Potiphar, who we surmise still has an affinity and a trust in Joseph. We kind of see that with him putting him in charge of his prison. You know, he's between a rock and a hard place. Do I, you know, signal that I don't believe my wife? Or do I say that I take the word of a Hebrew slave over her and so forth? And so, nevertheless, whether in Potiphar's household or in his prison, Joseph and continues to honor the Lord and to live according to the word of God. And thus the testimony of his administrative integrity becomes obvious to more and more people, and that goes before him. When Pharaoh's officers, even Potiphar himself, are summoned, let's say, by Pharaoh to give an account for Joseph, I'm sure it wasn't only the cupbearer who put in a good word, 
but also those officials who would serve alongside him in that prison or those who attended Potiphar's affairs with him in the household would say, this is a man that I would pay attention to, would trust with the administration of my realm. You should listen to him, Pharaoh. Thus, a remarkable advocate was going before Joseph in the individual case, the cupbearer, but also in the case of God's work, or the, the fruit of his obedience that God was using and also his reputation of faithfulness. And thus, this surprising ally, the cupbearer, is finally being interviewed two years later, and he is something like a man of peace. I want to connect this to a concept in missions, which seems appropriate as we're sending the Englishes off on mission today. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 10. There's uh, missions, as I understand it, I've heard testimony too, a strategy for missions that has been extremely effective in China. And in spite of the inhospitable cultural and government circumstances, the church has spread like wildfire in an underground kind of way and yielding great fruit. We hear tell of this. The strategy for church growth that has been embarked upon has been drawn, as I understand it, um, among many who serve there, from Matthew chapter 10. And the concept here is called the man of peace. We read in 11 through 15 the instructions of Jesus. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So by implication, we draw from this text, as the Lord prepares the way for his word and his people to establish a foothold in a foreign land, he will sovereignly go before them and prepare a man of peace, if you will, a remarkable ally. We as a church have been praying that the Lord would go before Jean and Marissa. Even this morning, one of us was praying uh, in morning prayer that the Lord would prepare the hearts of those that they would minister to. There ha we trust that the Holy Spirit has gone before them just as he has gone before, we trust, in the case of Fred and Cindy in Malawi and also in, with Mercy with, through Eye Care Ethiopia. And has been working on the hearts of individuals and remarkable allies are being raised up to come alongside and to serve. The Lord did this in the case of Joseph, the cupbearer <coughs> receiving the word of God through Joseph, remembers him, and God uses this individual to establish a foothold and to advocate on his behalf, and then his work proceeds. In missions, God does something like that. He will go forth, and he will prepare and soften the hearts of people so that when you enter that place, you find this is indeed where he has called you, and he has purposes for you there because God has softened the hearts of those you're called to minister to, perhaps raised up a leader that surprises you, that, whose discipleship is expedited and is able to be influential and establish a work, and in a relatively short amount of time, maybe pastor a work or continue it forward. These are the kinds of things the Lord does by revelatory intrusion when he's accomplishing his purposes, even in areas that are hostile against him. Final point this morning, <clears throat> the revelatory intrusion of Almighty God. We see it by way of an alarming dream, 
a remarkable advocate, and finally, by biblical prophecy. This prophecy comes by way of interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. I've mentioned to you, I found it fascinating in the case of the dreams that Joseph has encountered in his life to look at the substance of of those dreams with a little more specificity. And when you do that, it's remarkable how much depth you might yield that you might yield by interpretation that is otherwise lost on you. Now I submit to you, in these two dreams, there is a reason why God uses cattle and grain, the blight of the east wind, and the Nile and these subjects of Pharaoh's dreams in order to make his point. Recalling the dream, Pharaoh recounts it to Joseph in this way. I have had a dream, verse 15. It goes on, verse 16 or 17. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Highlight Nile. I wonder how the Nile might be significant in the life and livelihood, let's say, or the culture of ancient Egypt. Furthermore, 18, seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed on the reed grass, cattle. Let's mark that for further study. Just kind of giving you a little you know, thought process when we're going through Scripture. And then we read a little bit further. We find that in a second dream, seven ears grow on one stalk, full and good. I wonder what grain might mean. So seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind. East wind, that seems like it may be significant. So anyway, that was my thought process in study. And then I just took those thoughts to the internet, and this is what I found. And these, by the way, are not commentaries, Christians commenting on the Bible. But these are actually sources from Egypt itself recounting its history and cultural foundations going back to the ancient times. This is what I found as far as cattle in Egypt. Quote, However, cattle worship, cattle worship was not limited to bulls. One of Egypt's most lasting national goddesses was Hathor, Hathor, who also took on several personalities in her role as a cow goddess. It's like a pretty a sweet lady, right? A cow goddess. She was almost certainly very, uh, a very old god in Egyptian religion, perhaps evolving from the very earliest Egyptian associations with cattle. Certain aspects of ancient Egypt were ingrained in the fabric of Egyptian civilization. Of course, there was the Nile River that seems to have been central to everything. But in the course of history, cattle became not only a source of food, but a symbol of Egyptian power that would survive through its entire history. Notice that? So they have a god that's a cow lady. The Nile is the center of their life and religious culture. And the cow is not just a source of food, but it's a symbol of their power and their ultimate survival. Okay? While such animals as the falcon had important religious roles, only cattle served the ancient Egyptians, Egyptians in so many roles, from foodstuff to beasts of burden to the manifestation of gods. Egyptians believed that cows were the manifestation of gods. So now we see a little insight, perhaps culturally, why God specifically used cattle to demonstrate his sovereignty over Egypt. By the way, this would happen again. Each plague was calibrated to dethrone a god in the Egyptian pantheon in the ministry of Moses. And so it is that God demonstrated to Pharaoh and through Pharaoh to all of Egypt that you place your ultimate hope in the Nile and cattle. Well, guess what? Seven years of emaciated cows will feed on those plump cows. That famine will be so deep and so protracted that your idols will be destroyed. They will be dethroned and broken before you. You who trust in cow, where will you put your faith? 
when the cows all are lying dead and are nothing but bleached white bones on the receding banks of the Nile, lying there gleaming in the reed grass. Then where will you turn? Well, this troubled, obviously, Pharaoh, and he turned to the God who created cattle in the first place, who traced his finger, as it were, and established the course of the Nile, and by his providential hand caused the sun, not the sun god Ra, but his heavenly body that he had marked as a sign of his covenant faithfulness to rise and to fall, and thus they were saved. If they had put their faith in cows, they would have thought during those seven fat years, we are invincible, we've worshipped our cow goddess, and look how she has fed us from the bounty of the reed grass of the Nile. And then boom, the blight east wind falls on year seven, and pretty soon the gaunt bodies of Egyptian uh, famine victims are parading through the streets chewing on leather and maybe each other because they failed to honor the God of gods, the king of kings, the, the, the true sovereign. So this is the context. Furthermore, what about grain? Well, here's another quote for you. Quote, grains were important to the Egyptians' diet. Wheat was used to make bread, while barley was a main ingredient in the brewing of beer. These grains also played a major role in the economy. For landowners, grain was wealth, and the associated commodities, bread and beer, served as payment for laborers and could be exchanged for other goods. You get the picture? Grain is basically money. Even priests were paid with bread and beer. Priests. When these were used as offerings to the dead, they were not left in the tombs to rot. Grains also had symbolic value and were associated with the annual agricultural cycle, as well as with Osiris, another false god, in both cases symbolizing life, death, and rebirth. You cannot serve God and mammon, Jesus tells us, and this is a lesson we need to learn today. There is so much angst because of the troubled economy, and man is no less susceptible to the temptation of placing his faith in the, what symbolizes a strong economy like, like, like uh, money or investments or holdings or nest eggs or retirement accounts or 401ks and so on and so forth. What is this? This is the grain and beer. This is the uh, means of economic vitality that we are tempted to worship today just as in the days of Pharaoh. But God was going to, by the breath of his east wind, blight the economic value of, of the uh, Egyptian so that if he didn't follow and bow before his word, there was coming seven years where there would be no grain to speak of and no beer to trade, and he would be at a bitter loss. But again, what happened? God, through his servant Moses, a servant Joseph, raised up this testimony to his sovereignty. The king and the people bowed before the Lord's word, and the land was spared. Then the last association, east wind. So what does east wind represent in Scripture? Well, if you go, and I just did a little word study, and you could do the same, you'll see some associations. Job 27, 2 speaks of east wind. Isaiah 27, 8. Uh, Jonah 4, 8. The Lord raises up an east wind and withers the plant that gave him shade. This happens almost instantaneously. Ezekiel 17, 10, 19, 12. Hosea 13, 15. All of these speak of what you could summarize as the withering judgments of God. The breath of the east wind, as it blows, 
It is a vehicle of the withering judgments of God. And that's what's pictured in Pharaoh's dream. Something like a blowtorch. We hear of the winds of Santa Ana in uh, California, for instance, as an example. And when they come, it brings a shudder to people who have built their palaces in the hills. And they might be surrounded with one road out and the, all the forest turned to timber. And one spark or cigarette out the windshield of a, you know, an irresponsible driver might be the end of that McMansion palatial estate on the Hollywood Hills because the winds, like a blowtorch, suck all of the moisture out of the vegetation and render the place vulnerable to judgment by fire. And the Lord brings His judgment in this way at times. And this brings up a message for Egypt at the time. Where will you stand when the east wind, the withering east winds of God's judgment blow? There is only one place to stand. There is only one hope of salvation. And this was proclaimed in the word of God by dream to Joseph and to the Pharaoh. Joseph demonstrates that the only safe place to stand is with the Lord's appointed and ascended Messiah. Joseph pictured this. The ascended Messiah, prophetically and serving as a king, will stand in the place of God's people, delivering his word and the means of salvation from famine. Jesus Christ, in fulfillment of that picture of old, is the Joseph to come, if you will. And he, in his death on Calvary, gives the bread of life to protect us from the blighting east winds of God's judgment, the withering judgments that bring the hellfire of condemnation on those who will not trust in the bread of life for the famine of the soul. Joseph demonstrates the only safe place to stand is on God's word and with his son, his anointed and appointed ascended Messiah who brings salvation according to the word of God. And in Jesus Christ, we are saved and enemies are defeated, and we bow before the authority of His Word, we will repent of our idols and pray that this message goes forth with conviction so that kings and peoples are troubled until they turn to Him. And pray that the gospel would go forth in honesty, telling the bad news and the warning of God's judgment that will come for sin if we do not repent, so that by that means the prophecy of God's truth can go forth, foretelling the reality of a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And as this word goes forth, pray that it would bring down the proud, that it would humiliate the self-exalted, and that they would recognize that in Christ alone is hope eternal. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of your scripture providing for us the reassurance that you are sovereign and you are in charge and also the duty to tell this truth to others who are out there investing their hope in things that will perish with the using. I pray that you would encourage us to be a witness to these things and if there are any in the hearing of this message who have not trusted the ascended Messiah, Jesus Christ, who not only rose from a pit like Joseph in prison, but indeed the grave itself, demonstrating his sovereign authority over the last enemy. I pray that they would turn to you in repentance and faith and find, Lord, the life-giving, uh, the life-giving abundance of your body and blood, forgiven in exchange for their sin. Lord, next week as we celebrate at your table, 
I pray that these things, Lord, would be treasured all the more for those of us that know you and that those, who, and that those Lord Jesus, who need to be convicted and turned from their sins would come to us and ask for a reason of the hope within that many more might be added to the kingdom before the east winds of the blighting east winds of your withering judgments blow across this land. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.